Welcome to VSI, Variation, Selection, Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. I have three really cool interviews lined up over the next few weeks, and I'm working on a fourth. This week, however, seeing as how it is spring break, where I've had a bit of time for thinking that I don't normally have, I thought I'd just tell you a story. See, I've been listening to John Oliver's New York stand-up show while working on my midterm grades. Those stories have kind of cross-pollinated in a weird way with some nights of lying awake at 4 a.m. listening to Henry Shuckman talk about Zen koans, which are teaching stories that deliberately make no sense, which are, in fact, designed to be irritating, to bother you into having an epiphany, which is a very different way of thinking about teaching. Stories are not valued very highly in the scientific tradition. We're human beings, of course, and humans love stories. But as a scientist and as a teacher, I'm always kind of devaluing stories. This semester, I'm talking to my introduction to research students about evidence-based medicine, which puts anecdotes and expert opinions at the bottom of the evidence pyramid. The pyramid is narrower at the top because a, you know, a meta-analysis combines the results of many studies, many experiments into a single conclusion. That picture of the pyramid, which I'll link to on the website, is a nice summary of the scientific mindset overall. Science, at least chemistry, grew out of alchemy and has always been interested in distilling things down to their purest essences. Alcohol, white sugar, cocaine, whatever. Messy piles of individual facts get boiled down into theories that get boiled down again into laws, growing simpler and more powerful as the incidentals of any particular situation are averaged away. Scientific laws are simple and powerful, and for that reason, scientists like them. Teachers like them because they seem efficient. Students like them, too, around test time at least, because they're easily memorizable and just as easily forgettable. Here's a research question for you. Does attempting to shortcut an individual human's process of learning by simply presenting them with the results have any bad effects on that person's emotional development. If you're arming a scientist for his or her own inevitable battles with the unknown, probably not. But what are we doing to our students who we just send off into the world carrying around these facts that they haven't earned through their own effort? Maybe it's a good thing they mostly forget these lectures. Just a thought.
Okay, so those random deep thoughts, Jack Handy style, were not by any means a story. Here's a story. In fact, here's a saga, a set of related stories. Apparently, when I was very young, I would refuse to go to sleep until my dad came in from the milk house, which was the house where he milked the cows. All right, now believe it or not, milking his own cows was a step up in the world for him. He started out doing manual labor for other people, including things like shoveling gravel for road beds. He helped build New Circle Road, which used to be the beltway around Lexington, Kentucky, which, if you've ever been to Lexington, says something about how much that town has grown in the past 50 years. Building roads is dusty work, and that dust can do funny things. If it settles in your ear canals and, and sticks to the wax in there, it can block your ear canal and mess up your hearing. If that happens, you might go to the doctor to get that plug of dried out wax and dust removed. Doctors normally do this by irrigating your ear canal. That's what they call it with a big syringe full of water. Think of a super soaker water gun. When my dad told that story, it was a story of endurance, of enduring pain, of feeling like the top of his head was going to blow off. Coincidentally, little biological evolution tie-in here, humans vary in the consistency of our earwax. If you are of European or African descent, you probably have wet earwax. If you are of Asian descent, you may have drier, flakier earwax. That consistency is controlled by one single gene. In fact, by one single base substitution within that gene. One letter. We know what it is and where it is. The upshot is that you inherit the consistency of your earwax from your parents. My guess is that you also inherit the amount of earwax you produce from your parents. By now, you can probably guess where this story is going. Graduate school in upstate New York was not a particularly dusty environment, so I have to put it down to genetics. There was a point where my ears itched all the time, and I had a series of ear infections. So I went to the campus health center, and where my doctor had just kept prescribing antibiotics over and over, the nurses at the health center actually looked inside my ear and stuck a soft white loop of plastic in there and started poking around with it which was not comfortable. Of course, at a point like that, you realize that if you move, you're just going to make it worse. So I, I managed to sit still while the nurse scraped around in there and then pulled out this unbelievable thing. I wish we had thought to weigh it. It would have been a Guinness Book contender. I'm sure of it. Now, this is a common reaction. I am not alone 
in my shock and awe. Check any YouTube video on this subject and you will see the same type of comments. No, I'm not kidding. There are YouTube videos on this subject and not just one or two. There's a lot of them. Some of them have soundtracks. It's a, it's a strangely compelling form of like ear pornography. Anyway, I was amazed that there was even that much room in there. The way some people always describe the TARDIS from Doctor Who as being bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Oh no, there's plenty more where that came from, said the nurse and, and dripped glycerin into my ears to soften the rest of it. So I have to walk back to my lab through the hospital with these big wads of gauze sticking out of my ears to hold the glycerin in there and work at my computer for a couple of hours while our lab tech made fun of me and the wax softened up. And I have to go back down to the clinic where the nurse practitioner now had a friend who was apparently tired of the everyday traffic of colds and venereal diseases and wanted to be in on something, and I quote, interesting. So they put a towel over my shoulder and handed me a little plastic pan shaped kind of like a bean or a foot and told me to hold that under my ear. Then they brought out this huge shiny metal horse syringe. It was so big that she needed two hands to operate it. Shoved that thing into my ear. There was no needle on it at least, but shoved that thing into my ear and leaned on the plunger of the syringe. That's right, yes. She leaned, she had to put her shoulder into it to get the kind of flow that she was looking for. But she's there standing at my shoulder sort of struggling with this thing and I have to sit there and not move while... Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? That roaring sound? Now imagine that you're in that. No. Wait, that's, that's not quite right. Imagine that that is inside your head. You may remember that my dad described it as having the top of his head blown off, but I don't think that quite captures the experience. I mean, explosions are generally over pretty quickly. There's a length to having your ears irrigated, a duration. Imagine that you're hanging upside down on a cable with your head in Niagara Falls waiting for someone to pull you up. You know they will, eventually. They're not just going to leave you there forever. But you have to wait. Having your ears irrigated by a professional is kind of like that, only warmer. And yet, here's the interesting part, it wasn't actually painful. Not exactly. There was definitely a shock on that first push, but by the third wave, 
I could actually sort of detach and observe the experience. The nurse was not wrong. It was interesting. So my experience was definitely different from my dad's, who remembered the whole procedure as a sort of torture. Of course, my dad is someone who has experienced a lot of injuries, a lot of pain, and who is afraid of pain. Fear amplifies pain, makes it worse than it actually is. If I were in the habit of just taking my dad's word for things, my experience would probably have been much worse than it actually was, because I would have been afraid. But I wasn't afraid. I had confidence in the nurses, and so the experience was kind of intense, not one I would choose to repeat for fun, but it didn't hurt exactly. I learned something from it. In our rush to educate people as quickly and easily as possible, what kinds of uncomfortable but valuable experiences are we depriving them of? VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with support from the National Science Foundation. You can subscribe to the podcast and the Between Episodes blog at our webpage, variationselectioninheritance.podbean.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook, where one Michael J. Crow, Esquire, recently posted the very first comment. To Mr. Crow and to all of you, thanks for listening.